Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Alex Spanko. My guest today is Renee Lehrer, CEO of Longevity Health Plan. But before we get to today's conversation, I'd like to let you know about the 2019 Architecture and Design Awards, hosted by our sister publication, Senior Housing News. Enter your newly developed or remodeled SNP in this year's awards under the nursing home or renovation categories. Over the last seven years, hundreds of entries from across the country have been judged in this program. To find out more information about the competition, visit shnawards.com. For the last year in the skilled nursing space, there probably hasn't been a hotter topic than institutional special needs plans, or ISNPs, special Medicare Advantage plans that specifically cover long-term care residents. In an era of declining lengths of stay and reimbursement pressures for managed Medicare and Medicaid, the idea of launching an in-house ISNIP plan has become increasingly enticing for skilled nursing operators, though the process isn't necessarily for everyone. I wanted to ask Renee about how Longevity has built its network of ISNIP beneficiaries and how its unique approach differs from other players in the space. Here's our conversation. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, let's just get right into this. Why don't you start out by telling our listeners a little bit about the health plan that you run, sort of how it came into existence and how big it is at this point. Okay. I run an entity called Longevity Health Plan. Longevity Health Plan has been around for about a year and a half, a little bit longer, but went live with its first patients in January of this year. It was started by a fellow in New York who had experience in the ISNIP world as a provider and then decided that he wanted to team up with others and build his own ISNIP and build a national plan that ultimately would be a provider-sponsored ISNIP. So he uh, got together with a group of other owners in New York, decided they would get together, build an ISNIP, found some private equity money and began to move forward in design and development of Longevity Health Plan. The plan went live January 1st of 2019 in two states, in New York and in Illinois. In New York, we are in the five boroughs of New York City, as well as Suffolk, Nassau, and Westchester. And in Illinois, we're in the three counties, including Cook County, around Chicago. So we've been around about eight months. We are working now with about 15 homes, and we're north of or will be north of 500 lives by the end of this month. We are continuing to grow and move forward, and we'll be going live in three additional states, New Jersey, Florida, and Oklahoma, on January 1st. We're a bit unique than other plans in that we are provider-sponsored because in every state that we go into, we create the legal entity in that state, and that entity is is owned 50-50 by the investors at the parent company and by local operators in the local states. So all aspects of the business is shared on a 50-50 economic basis between the nursing home operators, nursing home owners, and the financial investors. Yeah, that's interesting that it's, uh, so it's multiple different nursing home owners that are working together to to grow these plans, is that correct? Yes, it's so there are multiple nursing home owners who are investors, and there are also nursing homes that participate in the plan as providers, 
who are not investors. And each state is its own entity. So there is a longevity health plan of New York. There is a longevity health plan of Illinois, Florida, Oklahoma, et cetera. Each state is its separate entity and has a different set of owners. The parent company is an owner in each state, but the owners from the SNF owners, from the nursing home owners, differ state by state. Clearly, it's possible, and we're seeing that. There are owners who own homes in multiple states, and they may participate in multiple state entities where their homes are. It's very important that, you know, that we separate the ownership or the equity from the operator. The ownership is a function of folks wanting to participate, but absolutely no relationship between the number of homes or the number of lives or the number of members. So ownership of buildings and operators, those are two distinct factors so that it's uh, we, we don't solicit owners by members and they don't buy in or take equity based on their membership. They base it on their level of interest to participate. Got it. So walk me through you know, the process. One of the questions that we all get, obviously, ISNIPs, employer-sponsored Medicare Advantage plans, all of this stuff is a kind of a hot topic in the industry right now, especially as operators are dealing with reimbursement pressures, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or just traditional Medicare Advantage payers. How do you go about building something like this You know, from the, from the beginning? And then once you have it sort of up and running, how do you go about expanding it into different states the way you guys have? So, you know, there's, there's several aspects to this. One is, what are the building blocks to put up an insurance company? And ISNIP is an insurance company. It's a Medicare Advantage plan. As you know, there are several kinds of MA plans. There's the traditional MA, uh, MAPD and uh, plans, which are generally HMO, PPO. And there's the special needs plans, CSNPs, chronics, which are chronic special needs, DSNPs, duals, and ISNPs, which are institutional. So we are an insurance company, but we partner with providers. And in this situation for an ISNP, the primary partner is the nursing home. That's where these residents, these members reside. And so we work closely with them to work and change how those patients are being managed, improve quality and outcomes and so on. But initially to start an ISNIP, you first must be a licensed regulated entity in the state. So for example, in New York or in Illinois, uh, Longevity Health Plan of New York, Longevity Health Plan of Illinois is a licensed HMO in, in each of those two states. So that requires you to file for an HMO license through the Departments of Insurance. Each state has a different name, but it's essentially the insurance commissioner to demonstrate that you've built an insurance entity, that you've built an entity with networks, that you have adequate net worth, that you're putting up risk-based capital, that you're meeting all the guidelines of who's involved in the entity and what the rules are and how the HMO works. So each state, you go through a detailed application process to be licensed. That allows you to be an HMO, but Medicare is a federal program. It's not a state program. So once you have your statewide license, you then have to apply to CMS for a H contract, which is a contract to become an MA provider, a Medicare Advantage provider. That process uh, takes quite some time. You file initial applications in February. This is to go live the following year. 
So, for example, we filed in February of 2019 to go live for our new states in 2020. Then, in order to get approval from CMS, it's a detailed, very detailed financial bid, talking about your financials and expectations for management. For an ISNIP, you have to put in a model of care, which is the management process that you will use to manage and develop individual care plans for each of these patients. Obviously, institutionalized patients are a bit different than a traditional 65-year-old or, or what we call an agent into Medicare or traditional Medicare. And you have to build a network, meaning just like any Medicare Advantage plan, you have to have a comprehensive network of providers, hospitals, facility providers, physician providers, ancillary providers, and you have to meet CMS geo-access, meaning each of these providers, there must be an adequate number of providers that have good geographic access to anyone who might join your network. So once you meet all those requirements and once you submit your bid and you submit your plan of benefits, you have to describe what benefits you're going to offer the, the members. That gets submitted the first week in June. There are often questions going back and forth, and you get final approval, hopefully in September, for your bid. If there are any deficiencies or questions, those need to be resolved. Uh, Medicare open enrollment for all Medicare products start October 15th. So you must have full H contracts, full licensure, full network before you can begin enrolling members. In the ISNIP, it's, again, it starts October 15th for effective dates of January 1st. It's the only time of the year that you enroll someone in an ISNIP for not the subsequent month. So you can enroll somebody in you know, October 20th, effective date is January 1st. You can do the same thing in November up through December 7th. For traditional open enrollment in an ISNIP, however, you can enroll anytime, and generally you would then be effective the first day of the subsequent month. So that's how you get it up and running. The challenges are significant. One, you have to have significant financial backing so that the state will grant you the license. They want to make sure that as an insurance company, you have adequate reserves in the event that your expenses are higher than you thought or you can't get funded, but yet you've provided services to for patients to doctors or hospitals, they want to make sure you have adequate reserves to fund those. But is there sort of a rule of thumb with, you know, one of the one of the things I get is how much money do you need or what kind of scale do you need to get this started? When they say sufficient reserves, is there a number or does it depend on how big you want to get? What's sort of the blueprint for that? So it, it varies state by state. You know, again, what we see sometimes with some of the uh, nursing home owners who think that they will do this on themselves they don't realize if they're in three states, they need three separate licenses. They, you know, One guy said, I'll use my license in Kentucky or wherever they are, and I'll just go in all the states. And you can't do that. Every state has their own rules. So there's risk-based capital and there's minimum net worth. And so that's a capital that you need to put up that's restricted. You need to always have that money there. You can't spend it down. The state generally, again, varies by state. We'll say at any given point in time, you must have certain reserves sitting in the bank that you're not using for other other things. 
So those are the reserves. But in addition to the reserves that are sitting there, you also have the expense of building a network. You also have, which is going out and contracting providers, every kind of provider. You also have to put put in your own infrastructure, obviously. You have to understand insurance. You have to have compliance capabilities. You have to have network people. So you have to build an infrastructure to support all of that. And then you've got to have an implementation capability, how to get something up and running. You have to have a claim capability. You have to have an enrollment capability. You have to be able to pay, as I said, pay claims, do actuarial reports, have financials, complicated. We believe on average, it depends on the state and it depends on how big you are and it depends on what your plan is for membership. It would not be unreasonable to assume that number can vary between eight, 10, 12 million dollars. So it's yeah, not insignificant. No, that's a significant amount of money. And so, so some of that is startup costs. You know, you have to hire people before you go live. So you're paying expenses for people and have no revenue. Your revenue doesn't start until you enroll a member. So if you have a executive director, if you have a nurse or a nurse practitioner, whether you have one member or 50 members, that's a fixed cost. It becomes variable as you grow. So it's quite expensive to start. It's honestly much more than money. You know, given my background in the insurance world, I've seen very often that providers, whether they're physician providers or hospital providers, believe they can become their HMO, their own HMO. In reality, some, few have been successful. Most have elected to be an MSO, a management service organization, where they work with an insurance company and take risk, but they're not the insurer. So they're not required to put up the capital. They don't have the entire infrastructure. So there's ways to get around it. And we created longevity as a vehicle to substantially decrease the amount of dollars an owner would need to invest to have an equity share, yet still have the benefit of the value proposition that they're, that they're driving. Got it. So that's, that's how you set it up. But... I think the real interesting piece and the key to this, that's all sort of administrative and a requirement as an insurer. But the interesting piece of this, and, and as we talk to uh, nursing home operators and owners, is that it's a fundamental change in how they think. It goes from what historically has been a PPD, you know, patient per day revenue, number one, to a PMPM, because now you have enrolled members, PMPM being per member per month. And secondly, the value proposition in the ISNIP is managing the outcomes for the patient to improve health and quality at a lower cost. And the value proposition is the SNP owner and the home participates in the management of the patient. And if they're able to manage higher quality at a lower cost, they share in the value. So today, if you're a traditional in a traditional fee-for-service environment as an owner, someone goes to the hospital, that doesn't cost you anything. In an ISNIP, you have ownership, you have participation in the entire premium dollar. So if someone goes to the hospital, it comes out of what we would calculate as your value proposition. So the goal here 
is particularly in this population, hospitalization's not typically great quality. It's not a good thing for an older person. I'm, I'm a physician by training. I practiced medicine for a number of years. But this population, if you can avoid hospitalization, it's in their best interest. So if the nursing home owner or operator can help support that patient, skill them in, the, in place, and basically treat in place, it's a better outcome for the patient, and the nursing home owner is rewarded for that if they're in an ISNIP that will share the value. At longevity, because it's a 50-50 partnership, any value that's created is split evenly with the providers and the investors. So it's the notion of going for, from how much revenue do I get in the nursing home to how much value do I create and how much of that value that I created is shared with me. It's a fundamental change. Yeah. And that, I mean, that is that kind of thinking is where regular Medicare is, is trying to go, you know, in the sense that the, the with the sniff value-based purchasing and all these other different metrics that they're looking at. But you're saying this is sort of like a supercharged way. You, you go all in, you go from maybe worrying about a couple of metrics to suddenly I'm taking care of the, the whole continuum almost is my responsibility. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting you use the term regular Medicare. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure there is such a thing. There's Medicare Advantage. <laughs> this is just a version of it. So you see in many parts of the country, it's not a sniff pay, it's not a nursing homeowner, it's a primary care physician for people in the community. Obviously, the majority of Medicare members are not institutionalized. In that environment, it's the primary care doctor who often owns the responsibility for the overall management. This scenario, what you really should think about is that the nursing home operator, the director of nursing, the administrator, the operator, is, the, is functioning as the overall manager of this patient by coordinating with the PCP, developing relationships with the hospitals, working with their own clinical staff, working with, in our case, our NP and clinical folks, they become the general manager for the patient because they know this patient better than anyone else. And they can provide services so that resident doesn't have to leave their home, but in fact can get good quality care in the nursing home. And when we talk to owners and we talk to operators, when they understand that, that goes on, and they understand the value proposition here. Medicare, clearly ISNIP is not the exact same as, an, as a traditional MA plan, but it's very clear that the government and CMS is supporting this program. And they've stated over and over again, they are going to move, they said this, I think, two years ago, greater than 50% of all payments to value-based care. And that number, I believe, uh, will only grow. So this is coming. And it really is quite interesting to work with operators who really care about the patient. As we look at the nursing home owners, they really care. It gives them the opportunity to have a much broader role in the whole constellation of care. Yeah. And one question that I did want to ask also about growing the uh, the plan, obviously residents have choice in what Medicare Advantage or what their insurance options are. How do you go about marketing these plans to residents of nursing homes without maybe pressuring them or, or running afoul of any you know regulations about patient choice? Because obviously that's another big thing that CMS, especially under SEMA Verma, has been really focused on is making is ensuring that patients still have the choice. So how do you market these plans in a, in a way that's compliant and a way that's helpful to the resident in the end? So marketing is quite different 
than I'll use your term, a regular MA plan, because this is viewed by CMS appropriately so as a vulnerable population. You don't want to let loose sales guys or or women or you know sales folks in a nursing home to just randomly go talk to people and say, don't you want to join my plan? You don't want to do that. And in fact, it's not legal. It is There's a very highly prescriptive manner about how you're allowed to enroll members in an ISNIP. First, to be a member in an ISNIP, you generally are an institutionalized patient. These are only long-term patients, not people who are in a home, you know, for rehab for a month or two. But these, unfortunately, are people who are likely to be in an institution for the balance of their life. They're generally much older and, again, quite, quite a different group. So the way this works is first you work with the nursing home. And you talk about your program and what you do and why you think it's in their interest for their residents, uh, both from a clinical and a quality perspective. And also, they're obviously interested in the financial implications of joining. If they agree to participate, if they don't, then they don't, and that's the end of it. And you can't enroll any members in that building. But if they do agree to participate, there are very prescribed marketing techniques, and they are expected to present to their residents that there is now another option available to them in the ISNIP world. If that patient or family member or guardian, whoever has responsibility for the patient, for the resident, says, actually, I'm interested or I'd like to learn more, the ISNIP is then given lists of folks who have demonstrated interest. They've signed something saying they would like to have a conversation. And at that point, we're allowed to send in staff to go have a conversation with the resident and explain the program and the benefits of it and what the value proposition is. And if the patient signs, then they participate and they become eligible the first of the next month. If they elect not to participate, they then generally are either fee-for-service, traditional fee-for-service Medicare. Some of them may be in a different MA plan. But most carriers, most big MA carriers, either don't participate in an ISNIP or they do their own program. It's the general MA population, the programs that are established don't work really well for this population. This population has unique needs. So it really does need a specialized plan. Got it. We're kind of bumping up on the end of our time here, so I wanted to uh, ask one more question. And this is kind of a broad question, but it's one that always comes up when we talk about specialized Medicare Advantage plans or providers thinking about getting in the game. You know, how does a provider know that it's a good choice or that it's the right choice for them to pursue starting their own ISTIP, perhaps, or joining together with a company such as yours, where you can do it in a more managed way? How do they, how do they know that it's right for them? And what are sort of the signs that maybe this is something they should pursue? Because I've heard from a lot of different sources that they might not be right for everybody. Obviously, you need the capital, you need the partnerships. What are some signs that it might be a good idea to do it yourself? And what are some signs that it might not be a good idea to go that route? So I think there's two questions there. I think, Alex, I think one is, should I be in an ISNIP? Should I bring ISNIP into my building? And the second question is, how do I do it? Do I do it myself? Do I do it with a vendor? Do I do it as a partner? What vehicle should I use? So should I get in the car and then what kind of car should I buy? And I think the notion of getting in the car before you decide whether you do it yourself or not is really do an assessment of your building. Uh, remember, an ISNIP of any kind 
is an insurance program. Insurance is based on shared risk. You need large numbers of people, residents, to be an insurer. You don't want to be a, you know, sell car insurance or homeowner's insurance to one person. Because if they have a problem, you're out of business. Your premium will never cover it. So there's an issue of scale. And you want to have enough members so that there's a distribution of risk across that population. You don't want to be in a situation where you have, remember, you're now covering hospitalizations and drugs that you didn't cover, but you didn't have responsibility for. So if you have unfortunate, you know, an unfortunate person who's quite ill, it could get quite expensive for you. So number one is scale. I mean, if they say, oh, you could do this with 50 patients, 100 patients, I wouldn't do that. When you're an employer and you buy health insurance, you generally, if you have 20 employees, you buy insurance. If you have 20,000 employees, you're self-insured. So in this example, scale is important. Secondly, look at the management in your building. One of the key drivers of success in, in, in an ISNIP is the ability to medically manage the patient broadly which means to have skill capabilities in the home, in the building, primarily to skill in place, to manage in place. Can you bring the services that patients need in your building to avoid a hospitalization? Are you, do you have the staff? Do you have adequate numbers of clinical folks? Can you, are you comfortable you know, running IVs, giving IV meds? Are you able to go in and truly monitor patients? Do you have some kind of predictive capability so you can identify who's likely to get sick so you can bring in additional resources? So a big issue is what is your patient population look like? And do you have the skills to manage them in the building and avoid the hospitalization? And then third, what's the culture of the building? It's a change in mentality. Uh, are, are, is your staff able to make that change? Is your staff able to make the switch from how do I maximize my Part A days or how do I create value in the home to how do I create value by managing this patient? So how they spend time with patients and how they interact with the ISNIP, whether it's there or someone else's, it's quite different. So it's size, it's obviously it's capital, it's the characteristics of your building and the utilization patterns that you have. If you have very high admission rates, you don't want to join an ISNIP or definitely don't want to be your own because you're at risk for every one of those dollars until you figure out how to manage. And it's culture. If you go through all of those things and decide that you would like to either be or participate in an ISNIP, then the question is, do you have the capital? Do you want to do it yourself? Are you willing to take on that risk and bring in all the administrative requirements that you need? You know, what will you do? What will you outsource? Clearly not going to be able to do much of it yourself. So really understand what an ISNIP is and what an insurance company is. You know, the world always said, you know, insurance is easy. I can do it myself. Uh, you need to look at all the health plans or, that were started by medical groups and hospitals that didn't survive because not that easy. I'm a big fan of if you know insurance, be an insurance guy, not a hospital or a nursing home. And if you're a nursing home manager and you're good at it, be a nursing home manager, not an insurance guy. They're businesses that support each other, not compete with each other. So, and if you then decide to participate, then the bigger question in my mind and what we talked about at the conference was, 
if you're going to create value, make sure you're adequately compensated for the value you create. So pick a partner or create a structure where there is a joint operating principle, where you work as partners, and when value is created, you share, but there's not a disproportionate splitting of the value, but it's a, it's a fair proportion of the value that's given to each of the owners. That makes sense? Yeah, that, I think that's a really good summary. I think that's a really good place to wrap this up, even though I could probably talk about this subject all day, but we only have so much time. Uh, I wanted to thank you again for joining us today and uh, hope to speak to you soon. Great. Thanks very much, Alex. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And for more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Spanko, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.